Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. The best form of security is one that identifies potential criminals before they act. Such preventative action, at least outside of the novels of Philip K. Dick, is however limited by imperfect human clairvoyance. Facial recognition technology, however, promises to offer creating databases that can help security forces identify and track suspicious individuals. The more promising facial recognition becomes as a technology, however, the louder grow the voices concerned about the potential invasion of privacy that such mass collection could or would entail. Only the guilty need worry may be the comforting reply, but how does a free society protect itself while also protecting the privacy of its citizens? Our guest today, to help us wrestle with questions of what facial recognition technology can accomplish and what it should and how it should be used, is Lieutenant Colonel Mandy Borer of the United States Army. Lieutenant Colonel Borer is a current student in the resident program of the U.S. Army War College Class of 2020, who received her commission as a military police officer from the United States Military Academy in 1998 with a Bachelor of Science degree in psychology. Lieutenant Colonel Borer also holds a Master of Military Arts and Sciences degree from the School of Advanced Military Studies and a dual Master's in Business and Organizational Security and Human Resource Development from Webster University. A highly decorated officer, she has served in a variety of leadership positions from the Pentagon to Kabul and Baghdad, including command of the 701st Military Police Battalion at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. More recently, Lieutenant Colonel Borer served as the chief of the tactical maneuver support within the Concepts Organization and Doctrine Development Division within MSCOE, Capability Development and Integration Directorate and as the Chief of Law Enforcement and Security for the Military District of Washington. Welcome to A Better Peace, Lieutenant Colonel Mandy Borer. Thank you. I'm excited, excited to get to do this today. Well, we're glad to have you here. I, I want to ask you, so you have, you have a uh, distinguished career as, in military police. Um, what got you interested specifically in the technology of facial recognition? So specifically for facial recognition, I've been interested in just what biometrics in general could provide as a security professional for several years. But my most recent job that you mentioned as the chief of law enforcement security for the military district of Washington really made me look at, at the capability even more because we have a number of events in the Washington DC area that the military is heavily involved in, and we're responsible for either leading the security or supporting the security. And during those events, you bring in so many people, so many civilians, members of the public into those events. And so we always looked at ways where we could maintain a high level of security 
that made it easy to access the event so that public would be encouraged to attend. It would be easy for them to attend and share in the military experience without creating huge delays. Mm-hmm. But at the, at the end of the day, it being a secure and safe event for everyone involved and facial recognition, the more I learned about it was just a great opportunity for us to leverage for the security of those events. While we were there, we started to, you know, look more at how we could leverage that that technology using facial recognitions to enhance the security of the events and started work to establish an army pilot program that we hoped and still hope uh, one day will be ad- adopted across the army and then potentially across the DOD. And so is the idea that the uh, images would be collected passively in the sense you wouldn't have people stop to get their picture taken, but rather from well-positioned cameras would uh, get a look at everybody's face and then download the images to a central database. Is that the basic idea there? That's the basic idea. And it would depend on the event um, or the the purpose. So Mm -hmm. if it's a special event, yes, those cameras would be oriented in just locations around the the entry control point, people probably don't even notice that they're there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a number of cameras and they're tied back to a security command post or a security location where we are able to constantly monitor and make sure that we're not picking up on people that are on a watch list or have wants or warrants or people that, you know, essentially people that could be do- there to do harm. So, Mandy, I, I, the way I envision this, then, it would require a degree of uh, coordination between agencies, in the sense of you know who would have, you know who would who would own the photos that were being compared uh, against. So, like at at an event, you're taking in the images, but then if you're talking about people with warrants, if you're talking about people who've been arrested for other things or on a watch list, right? Those those each of those kinds of photos would be held by different organizations, right? Correct. The, the three major players for this would mm-hmm. be Department of Defense, would be the Department of Homeland Security, and the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, each organization has a database of you know, faces of biometric data of, for watch list personnel. And each of those organizations are maintaining compliance with federal privacy laws and you know, making sure that they're doing things properly for the access and security of, of their database. Mm-hmm. And depending on what the event is, who's the lead agency would kind of depend on that would drive what happens after you get a potential match. Right. But yes, you can, and there's information sharing agreements between the DOD, DHS and FBI, where depending on what's going on, you can pull in those various databases if needed. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't want to. You know, obviously, we're 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 speaking purely open source here, so no, uh, no, no secrets are are being traded. How how do you or the officers who are in charge of this program? How would you envision it working? Like, let's say you're doing security at an at an event in Washington and uh, doing this the scanning of the crowd, and you you come up with a match. Let's say you you discover that there is someone who is on a watch list who is milling around in a particular crowd or who entered through uh, entrance A. Would the goal be then to enhance surveillance of that individual based on the fact that you know that that individual is there? Um, or 
what would you do next? So the facial recognition software and that technology produces probabilistic results. So okay. whenever that computer screen pings saying we have a, a potential match, you can set it it'll, for a minimum level of confidence that you're looking for. And it will tell you there's 99% certainty that this face matches uh, this face out of the database. And we consider that lead generation. Mm-hmm. You may continue to monitor them from a distance. Uh, you may approach and ask for identification um, and try and confirm if that is indeed the person. And it may not even go that far. It, the screen may ping that you have a match and that security professional looks at it and goes, nope, uh, I think the software, they got a mismatch here mm-hmm. and you can discard it. And right. I just want to clarify one of the things you said before. Sure. With my recommendation for how the DOD could use this, we would not continue to maintain captured images of those people in the crowd. It would be you walk in front of the camera. It takes that split second to compare your face to the database. And if it's not a match, it is gone just as quickly as it came in. It's not... Uh, those would not be things that we would want to save. Understood. Understood. That's an important. That is an important distinction. Thanks for bringing that up because I, I, I was curious about that. And well, where are we, uh, broadly speaking, in terms of the technology that allows us allows us to have any confidence that matches are accurate? Uh, so I think of this. There's the there's the the could question and the should question. So we'll start with the could. Um, you know, could we really be confident that we are identifying someone uh, as someone who is in a database, or are at least as the way things stand, are are we still at a point where it's possible for people either to uh, to either to thwart the technology themselves, or just for the technology to be imperfect enough that it will uh, it will come up with false positives or false negatives? I would say the technology is still imperfect. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it's important to have your competent security professionals that are taking a look at things and treating this as lead generation and not treating this as we got to go grab that person right now. Right. Uh, But for further investigation to see what's going on and figure out who the person is. You know, there's, you may have read in the news with concerns about facial recognition, having a higher, um, a higher misidentification rate for people of color Mm. and the national Institute of standards and technology NIST, they have found that. But when you look over time as the software and the algorithms get used more, they, those algorithms get smarter and Mm. the technology improves. And so you increase the confidence of the system, the more we use it and it's getting better and better every year. I think that with the proliferation with it, with the UK is a very heavy user of facial recognition technology. Russia is investing far more in facial recognition uh, technology. Korea, South Korea is a huge user of facial recognition technology. And I'm sure you've read about uh, China's safe cities initiatives and, Mm -hmm. and their investment in the technology, both in their country and in other places. I think all of those things combined are going to make the technology better and smarter. And mm. this is projected to be a, a growing industry, you know, worth $12 billion estimated in just 
four more years. So that's right. That's pretty big. Indeed. Well, and and it is interesting because the idea of using technology to identify people who are going to break the law takes on a different flavor depending on what laws we're talking about people breaking, right? In a in a dictatorship of uh, simply expressing a legitimate uh, critical opinion of the government as a crime in a free society, of course, crimes are very different. We'd like to think. Um, I am. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned at least two states, the United Kingdom and South Korea, who are friendly allied states with the U.S. And is there a degree of technological sharing or best practices sharing that goes on uh, between friendly states when it comes to the development and the use of this kind of software? Well, a large portion of the development of the software from my research is done by the private sector. Ah. Mm-hmm. So, and those countries are are international. Um, the NEC, for example, NEC, for example, is a major player in facial recognition technology, and they have contracts and systems all over the world, including the U.S. So, as they improve, you know, what they learn in Korea, for example, or what they learn in the U.K., they're going to apply uh, those lessons across their systems that they offer. I gotcha. Yeah. So, we're, so we may be talking about the same firms that are offering variations of the same technology to, to all, to, to many of the same international players. You know, as countries learn more about faces in, in their nation of different demographics, yes. you know, that, that can go towards make closing that gap that the NIST recognized where the tests that they did showed a preponderance of misidentification for people of color. You know, we can learn from other nations and what they have in different different cultures and backgrounds and apply that. Right. Well, and do you think, and this, this may be outside of this, your specific experience, but I'm curious about your opinion as a, uh, as a police professional, the security professional, um, should there be limits on the availability of these technologies? Like should the United States be encouraging companies not to sell this kind of technology to unfriendly states? Or is it just, is it already too late to stop the proliferation of this technology to uh, states that we would rather not have it? I would say that unfriendly nations like China and Russia have, Mm -hmm. they're already well on the road uh, for developing their systems. So it would be hard to undo any of that or to stop that. I think that they've got their, their own capability of developing it and they're moving out on it. I th- right. do think that if they had access to what friendly nations are collecting, that could be a security vulnerability that, you know, that's something that we have to protect. Mm-hmm. And certainly with the way that other nations use their information, I certain mm-hmm. I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want that to happen to the American population. Right. Am I correct that that you your research as a student at the War College included a included research specifically on uh, new programs or uh, thinking about how we could develop and use this technology going forward? Is that true? Yes. I yes. Did some research and considered you know how other nations use it, what the privacy and legal concerns are, what authorities grant us the ability to do it and how we can do it in a way that's to, mm-hmm. that continues to protect American civil liberties and Americans' expectations of privacy. I think those controls are in place. Those authorities are in place. So I made a, a few recommendations on how we can leverage this technology to increase 
the security of our installations and of the people and events uh, that are coming and going around all DOD activities. What's the, what's the first recommendation that you had? So the first recommendation is that I think that we should expand this use. There are a few installations across DOD that already do this. Mm -hmm. I think that we should expand it across the board, make it available for all installations to use, particularly during special events, whether that be an air show that a base may be hosting or a major 4th of July celebration. These events bring in, you know, hundreds of thousands of people onto the installation, lets our military connect with the American population. Pretty important. But we want to maintain security when we do that. We also don't want to have a line at the gate that's 10 miles long of people trying to get in, right? Right. And facial recognition is is something we can use that can quickly make sure that that person is, you know, not to be too simple, but make sure that person's not a bad guy. Mm -hmm. You know, it will in seconds do that background check on them, make sure they say they are who they say they are and they can access the event. They have fun. Everyone remains safe. What strategy do you think security professionals should take with uh, dealing with public concerns about privacy? Uh, uh, Is it enough to tell people, right, we're not going to keep this information? Uh, Is it enough to tell people, listen, you give more information away when you sign up for Facebook than you're ever going to give up by looking at a camera on your way into a military base? Um, is that enough to satisfy people? Is that should, should you know, it's because it's one thing to tell people they shouldn't be worried about this. But if people are, if that's a, if that is a fact that they are worried, then how do you dispel those fears without simply telling people um, you got nothing to worry about? There's a couple parts to this. One, you're absolutely right. I totally agree that people either knowingly or unknowingly give up their personally identifiable information all the time for everyday conveniences, whether it's you using your using facial recognition to unlock your phone <laughs> for or example. providing your location constantly uh, so that you can get a discount on insurance or, you know, you can get access to your bank. I mean, we do it all the time and we don't even think about it. And that is largely unregulated. Hmm. The government use of it is regulated. We do have a number of controls so that only personnel that have a right and a need to access the information will access it. We have controls so that we don't, that we have used every possible means not to potentially invade on someone's privacy. And then we're going to control how we use that safeguard and use that information. That doesn't mean that people aren't going to be concerned about it. I think it's fair. You always want to make sure that the government is not only providing for your security, but doing it in a proper way, right? So I think we should be prepared to openly, number one, notify the public that in order to access this installation or to access this event, we are using facial recognition technology to enhance the security. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely essential that we do some sort of notification. But also with this, every day, if I know that you have been on an, on an Army installation, 
And for <laughs> anyone else listening, whenever you come on to any military base, if you walk off to the side, there's a brown sign somewhere near that gate before True. you drive in. And you probably don't even read, you probably don't pay much attention to it. It's got lots of words on it. Uh, but really what that sign is saying is that by entering this installation, you are giving your implied consent to additional security screening procedures. That means mm -hmm. that if you're going, you know, we can do a background check on you. We can check your ID. We can, you know, make sure that your face matches the face on the driver's license and that that face matches the face in the big uh, database that we use that, you know, the national law enforcement uses. So those those sorts of screening protocols are already in place, but you could do the same thing, the same level of screening, checking those exact same things with facial recognition in a second. So where people say, oh, you're violating my privacy or I'm concerned about my privacy. It's like we are looking at the exact same things with this technology as we would have looked at if you went and sat in line for you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes to do these checks. Right. But of course, so as, so you're, you're saying as long as there is a degree of, uh, uh, disclosure, so we're not, we're not collecting this information in secret. We are letting you know that we are collecting this information. Yes. And that is actually part of, part of the controls that are already in place is that whenever any federal government entity is going to do something that, that collects information on people, but you're going to, you're going to do a notice on that. And we do a formal one. It gets, it gets published. People can go look at it. So that's in the system. That's a, a mm -hmm. official government record, but also I think it's important just because of our culture and to be transparent in the use that we notify uh, people that that's what's going on whenever they are attempting to access an installation or an event. Mm -hmm. And, and to be clear, right, what we're talking about so far is people, uh, entering, accessing a military installation or a, a sensitive government related structure. Um, what about the prospects of the use of facial recognition software, uh, more broadly in public spaces? Uh, we know that in, in Great Britain, there's a proliferation of closed circuit cameras in South Korea. You know, we won't even talk about places like China. But what should we or how should we as citizens think about the way that that kind of information is or is not being collected, is or is not being used by security forces on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, um, first to clarify, I'm not going to advocate for the DOD using facial <laughs> recognition, you know, at the corner of East and Main and in whatever city. Uh, right. that's, that's not part of my argument here. But you're right. Understood. Uh, Police agencies in a number of, of major metropolitan areas and even in some smaller towns are using this. It's probably more common than people realize. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, and, and perhaps I'm biased as a, a police professional, you know, I'm going to there are a number of controls that are already in place just mm -hmm. as for the military on how they can use information and how they safeguard it. So the good thing is that it's regulated and that if mm -hmm. someone is going to violate those controls, there will be repercussions. What I find more concerning is that there is not currently any regulation on the private use 
or commercial use. You know, you, there is a major convenience store chain that uses facial recognition in their stores to keep an eye on people that they consider to be troublemakers. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, not regulated. Um, they are using that. That's a fair use. You know, they're trying to protect their product. I think it's a little bit more concerning whenever those companies then are selling your information, your routines, where you go, how much you spend your money on, you know, all these things about you to then third parties. And then you completely lose track of, right. you know, your own personal information. And maybe and that's that, a slightly separate topic. No, uh, but, but it's, but it's, I guess uh, when we think about the things that people are afraid of, uh, you know, people are afraid of a lot of things. We all have things we're concerned about. And one of the fears is that this kind of information uh, is going to be shared without people's consent or knowledge. Um, and if I understand what you're, what you're saying here is that where the the use of that information within within the DoD within within security space uh, is limited by by statute, whereas in the, in the private sector there is no specific rule against a uh, a private company sharing with another private company or selling to another private company information that they collect on their private premises. Correct. And, and so people should be, uh, people perhaps should be concerned about that, um, uh, but they should remember they should focus their concern on the source of the concern. Right? It's not Big Brother that people should be afraid of, perhaps, but it's a proliferation of little brothers out there who are collecting people's information and selling. Yes. Now, I I understand the concern for you know a government overstepping and invading on a person's personal privacy. I understand that. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't worry about it, but mm-hmm. to me, at least that is regulated and there are going to be repercussions. There, there will be repercussions on me if I do not properly safeguard that information or if I decide to share it with someone else that doesn't need to know. You know, there will be an audit and I will be held accountable for that. If right. whatever store you like to frequent starts selling your shopping habits because uh, they've tracked you around the store uh, to a hundred other stores and across the world, marketing firms, all that, you know, you, it's a, a little bit much. Right. They're not likely to get uh, reprimanded for that. They may get a quarterly bonus for managing to Correct. sell that information. Um, well, uh, that may be that may indeed be a subject for another time. But before we, as as a final question for us to wrap up today, uh, how do you imagine yourself working in this? Uh, in this space or with this topic in your uh, your future assignment when you go back to Fort Leonard Wood uh, at the end of this academic year? That's, um, that is an interesting question. I am going to work in a directorate called the Fielded Force Integration Directorate, and it will cover a, a huge array of capabilities that cover engineer, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, and military police. So big protection, uh, portfolio, maneuver, enhancement, lots of unique ideas in there. So I could see that this could come up as we discuss protection capabilities for our force and for the homeland and finding ways to equip employ field and what the doctrine should be for it. I think that would be pretty exciting if I could see something like that come to fruition and I'm able to to work it through to a much, much bigger audience 
in a future future assignment. That would be pretty neat. That would be pretty neat. Well, I hope you'll get a chance to do that, uh, Mandy Borer, and I hope that uh, that you will get a chance to continue your work. And we really do appreciate you taking the time to join us today to talk about uh, facial recognition and everything that you do here on A Better Piece. Thanks for being here. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs and send us your suggestions for the future. Um, please, if you are listening to, to us for the first time, please subscribe to A Better Piece um, and rate and review this podcast on the podcatcher of your choice because that's how other people find it and can listen to it. We're always interested in hearing from you because we always hope that we can provide things that you are interested in listening to. So uh, we look forward to seeing you back here again next time. But until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.